All right, well, welcome. Um, this is our fourth and final week of this EQUIP series. And um, I'm going to start by basically saying I think that I did a disservice uh, to you all with the way that I began the first talk. So if you were here, um, in the first session, I mentioned off the cuff to begin with that I was a pessimist. Um, and that ended up kind of setting a tone, the tone for the rest of the talk. Um, in conversations that I've had since, um, I've begun to recognize that framing it that way uh, makes it seem like my goals for this whole thing were more negative than they actually um, are. And so I feel like those comments might have um, incorrectly characterized me as one of the sky is falling sort of uh, naysayers that evangelical Christianity is filled with. Um, so I want to say I'm not a pessimist. Um, because a pessimist would not be able to find the book of Ecclesiastes deeply joyful. Um, yeah, a pessimist would basically look at the meaninglessness and stop there. Um, I would say I have far too much hope to actually be a pessimist. Um, I don't believe that the world is descending um, into chaos, that it's just getting worse, um, but instead that things are much more cyclical, right? As we have kind of talked about, some things are getting better, some things are getting worse, um, and, and ultimately, as certain people have pointed out to me, um, we face the same challenges today that every person in the history of the world has, um, trying to find our place in the world. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to make as we go through all of this is that um, I believe that the culture that we're currently inhabiting is dehumanizing, and it makes finding our place um, far more complicated. Um, I was struck by something that Mark Ward said last week uh, when he was answering questions. If you were here, uh, he paraphrased this conversation between John Piper and John MacArthur, um, in which John MacArthur was kind of talking about how things are getting worse and all the hostility, um, and Piper basically interrupted him and said, it's always been this way, John. Uh, David French uh, wrote something similar in an article a few weeks ago titled, It's Always a Negative World for Christianity. Now, Mark's response to this last week was, they're both right. And I agree with that. Right? We live in a world that was created good but has been twisted by sin. It will always have its challenges. It will never be all bad. It will never be all good. And in that article I just mentioned, after spending a great deal of time trying to show that the golden age of America was not quite as golden as some people want to make it, David French said, to declare that Christianity is always going to be out of step with the spirit of any given age is not to say that ages don't change. Challenges are different depending on the times. And that's ultimately what we're talking about, right? The unique challenges that we currently face, right? What is it about this age that makes life so disorienting for so many people, both Christian and non? And I believe we need to look at this because we will not be able to come to proper conclusions without being right about the problem. So I spent the first talk laying out sort of these five elements of our culture that have contributed to the struggle. Uh, the de deconstruction of institutions, the push to the extremes, the move from relationship to ideology, the onslaught of information, and an insecure future. And so I'm going to use those five to kind of frame what we're talking about tonight um, in this talk. Where do we go from here? And my hope is that being honest about the problem is going to give us some clarity on what we need to do to respond to the changes that, to, to the changes that have created disillusionment. Now, in between kind of my bookend talks, we had a couple of other people come and, and present to us. We had Sarah Billups and Mark Ward. 
Uh, and I invited them here to um, help give us a few pieces of the puzzle. Sarah kind of gave her personal um, journey of navigating this world, uh, the world that she understood from her uh, youth and her upbringing, um, and trying to kind of make sense of that with the world and culture she found herself in as an adult. Um, one of the reasons I invited her here, one of the things I really like about her writing and her story is that she's very honest about her doubts and her fears, but also is very clear that the only place to go with those things is to Jesus. Right? She's very frustrated by many aspects of, um, of, of the evangelical church and, when, and things that are called the evangelical, but she also isn't willing to give up that label. She knows the church is messy and awkward, but she also sees it as this beautiful community of God's people and the only hope for struggling individuals. Now, Mark, last week, began the process of showing us where to go. Right? He spoke last week on many of the narratives that we are given in our culture. Really, he just talked about Disney movies. Right? <laughs> and he challenged us to believe boldly in the identity that we've been given as creatures created by a good and loving creator. This gives us the freedom to live toward our giving, given purpose instead of feeling the need to market and prove ourselves. This allows our successes and failures to have far less weight on who we understand ourselves to be. In this, then, our life and our identity become much less fragile. And so I want to continue this today. I'm showing how our relationship with God gives us the tools to be able to deal with the new challenges that we face. And as we go along, I also want to make plenty of time for conversation today, a lot of questions, and, and, and really for you to be able to say, well, these are the specific things I'm going through. Let's talk about and think through how to handle these things. So with all that, let's get into it. We're going to start with the deconstruction of institutions. Um, and I'm going to introduce that topic as a reminder uh, by reading something that I wrote actually five years ago uh, in a blog on this topic. I wrote, over the last 50 years, we've been going through a societal experiment, the unfettering of the individual. With individual rights as the war cry, we have undermined numerous institutions and structures that used to hold communities together. The most serious of these deconstructions is the family. The family used to be the place people would turn to when they were down on their luck, mentally disabled or elderly. Family was the place that helped teach you all the moral and ethical lessons needed for life. Family was the place where you understood your place in the world. Now families are a series of individuals jockeying for self-identification. As the degrading of families began to show societal implications, people worked to build replacement networks through friends, social media, and or hobbies. These groups solve the aspect, um, aspects of the other people problem, but have failed miserably at the larger issue of rooting people emotionally and spiritually. As well, these fabricated institutions seem to fall apart the moment that they are strained. And it leaves many people terribly lonely, unsure, and constantly doubting their own self-worth. Um, again, this was, follows very much what we're talking about now. I wrote that back in 2017 before COVID, before a lot of the things where we kind of saw those relationships strained and now are feeling the other side of that. And so this is the problem. We need constants in our life. We need the things that continue to be there that help us to orient our sense of reality. Institutions serve for us as beacons um, in terms of being the safe place that we can trust in and return to when all the variables in our life are destabilizing. Right? So coming back home to family should have sort of a calming familiarity to it. 
Work should remind us of our sense of purpose, to fill the earth and subdue it, to, to have dominion. Church should be a place where elect exiles come together, dual citizens of heaven and earth coming to rejoice and weep as one. Governmental institutions should provide for us the structure of laws and justice and authority that help us to sort of know the parameters of the world that we live in. But what deconstructing all of these things has done is it simply created an every person for themselves reality, where everything becomes a struggle for power. Families become something to fight with and heal from. Work becomes something to avoid. Church becomes a collection of difficult people you don't need. And government becomes a corrupt, self-serving entity to resist. And so instead of these entities cre- or these institutions providing the constant, they just end up becoming more variables in our life, more things that we can't really rely on or trust in. And so my way forward on this one is pretty simple. We should invest in these institutions. Build a healthy family. Husbands, love your wife. Love your wife, not wives, just one, just one. Wow. Took a turn. Um, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. As for your job, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Bosses, stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Employees, obey your bosses, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. With that, build up the church, right? Attend church, serve at the church, participate. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and as all the more as you see the day drawing near. As for the governing authorities, be part of local government. Vote. Take issues seriously. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, if you don't know, all I basically did is just recited all of the different verses of these things. God has already given us the framework and and the understanding of what it looks like to build these institutions. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to to, to sort of um, go and find it ourselves. We just need to actually practice the things that he has already told us to do. And we should do all of these things not not only because you will benefit um, from them, but because you will also be creating constants for other people to rely on. You should open your home to those who don't have familial health. Be a constant for others. Work with integrity to create a job environment that is not full of fear and combativeness. Be part of a healthy church community that anyone can walk into and be welcomed. Work towards a political structure that is not a game or a competition, something to laugh at, but is people working together to create a structure for a flourishing society. Now, institution building is hard because it requires a lot of work and sacrifice for results that we may not even see directly. Author Andy Crouch describes it this way. He says, we need much more institutional intelligence. It starts, I think, with humility. 
the serious and sustained effort to consider others better than ourselves, including the others we will never meet in future generations. It calls forth a deeper and different kind of love, the kind that is other-directed and sacrificial rather than the comforting mutuality of affirmation that is often called love, but is actually just romance. It requires patience, the capacity to be present to suffering, including the suffering of the mundane work that sustains all institutions and actually all lasting human relationships. And it culminates in nothing less than holiness, the purification of our hearts until we truly will one thing and thus can serve our neighbors and our institutions without any hidden agendas, without fear of man, and with the confidence that somehow our labor in the Lord, which should be all of our labor, is not in vain. If we can develop such humility, love, patience, and holiness, and I'm tempted to say if we can do so awful quickly because our culture's institutions are crumbling at an alarming rate, we may just be able to build and rebuild and pass on the kinds of authoritative communities that our children's children will so desperately need. And so when you invest in the important work of institution building, it makes a lot of the background noise disappear. What I mean by that is there's all these things to focus your attention, but if you actually see what needs to be done and put your time into it, that's right in front of you. There's too much work to be done to spend all of our time on Twitter spats. There are real people suffering. They need our help. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Be a laborer. The second section that we're going to address is the push to the extremes. Right, I said in the first talk, uh, if we don't have a clear idea of who we are, if we've been discipled in the language of deconstruction, then we will begin to define ourselves by what we are not. And this is what we see happening as people take more and more extreme positions in order to distance themselves from the other. And so we have two sides running away from one another and picking more and more extreme positions as a result. Now, one of the interesting side effects of this that we've seen is um, a lot of positions that were moderate um, uh, and normal 20 years ago are now deemed extreme, right? So the idea that the government should play a role in making sure the less fortunate are cared for through social programs is now labeled socialism by those who have drifted right. Traditional marriage definition is called bigoted by those who are drifting left. And so all of a sudden, the distance between things seems bigger because people are getting further away. And so the way forward on this one um, is, first and foremost, to reject the categories of extreme otherness, to understand that even the people whom we disagree with most profoundly are the people that we are called to love and serve. One of the best ways to navigate this extreme climate is to not be part of it. Right? Do not engage in the extreme banter that has become normal. I read an article by Alan Noble um, this week where he addressed the tendency of Christians to respond in kind to both real and perceived attacks. He puts it this way. He says, since the world is going to treat us and our beliefs with contempt, the only choice we have is to treat the world and its beliefs with contempt, which means we can use the same tactics that are used against us. He, that's not what he's, he's telling us to do. He's saying that's what people have um, kind of fallen into. And he goes on to show how, how this posture leads to us becoming more extreme. And he shows this progression in three steps. These are his three steps. First, we, it causes a flawed understanding of the world. The world comes to mean not just disordered and destructive ideas and actions, but the people who hold these ideas and perform these actions. 
And just as the world has contempt for us as people, some then feel justified in showing contempt for them as people. He says, I don't think this slippage of definition is usually intentional or conscious, but it happens. And it can manifest in condescending humor, memes, and arguments. Most importantly, it manifests in the failure to desire the good of the other. That then leads to a failure to desire persuasion. In any argument that matters, we should desire the good of the other person, which means desiring that they be persuaded of what is true, good, and beautiful. If they believe disorder or destructive ideas, then in our debates with them, whether private or public, our hearts ought to desire that they see the error of their ways and repent. But if you have contempt for your conversation partner, you will not desire their good. You will not love them. The idea that persuasion should not be the primary goal of evangelical public discourse denies our obligation to love our neighbor, including our enemies. This then leads to the third step, an adoption of immoral rhetorical methods. He says, sometimes, just sometimes, it seems to me that some critics of winsomeness are merely looking for an excuse to use the immoral rhetorical methods of the world. They get to mock and scorn their enemies, and so we should be able to as well. They make gross generalizations about us, so we should do the same. They exaggerate things to the point of deception, so we can. They embrace echo chambers and spread lies and disinformation, so we create our own self-deceiving echo chambers. Now, in order to get caught in what he's talking about here, we first would have to reject God's teaching on how to live in a community and treat our neighbors, which we should not do. Instead, we should continually ask ourselves what our role as ambassadors is, which includes wanting what is best for everyone and working through dialogue and disagreement to find both commonality and differences. And we should have great hope that speaking the truth will not only win people over, but it will help prevent us from falling into the trap of defining ourselves by what we are not. So the next one kind of dovetails with that. It's the move from relationship to ideology. Um, I define this in the first talk as um, uh, viewing people through their ideology alone. Um, that the whole of a person can be summed up um, by who someone voted for or whether or not they took part in a march. Um, this reduction um, is why my, uh, the company that I order stickers from has to tell me their political stance on every single issue that comes out and why many families are going to have a very complicated Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but our politics and our ideologies are really only a small part of who, uh, are, are who we are and what our identity is. Um, but they become the lens through which all of us is seen. And so my way forward on this one is, first of all, don't reduce people in this way yourself. That's kind of the, the, the one side. Be a person who is safe to talk to about a multitude of issues, uh, where people can come and throw out an idea that you might find terrible, and you don't just respond by flamethrowing them, uh, but you engage with it as an issue that that they brought up, and it doesn't kind of undo all of the other things that that person is. You can actually look at that and go, I think that that is a stupid idea. But, again, you don't actually destroy them as a person in the process. In other words, don't spend all your time looking for reasons to reject someone. Instead, spend time building the relationship that will be the glue that holds you together through sort of these ideological storms. And I think that's some of what you're talking about, where when you have that relationship, it allows those conversations to happen much more clearly. Now, the bigger question moving forward for most people, though, is not just about how we should be acting towards others, but what do we do when people put us in an ideological box? 
Um, some of you are navigating difficult relationships in your own family, work, uh, or with friends where you're being cut out uh, for what you believe. Now, for this, I want to sort of reiterate a point that Mark actually made last week. Um, he said that we, we tend to politicize every issue. And he said specifically, uh, he used the example of abortion. Uh, he said that, that that's not a political issue, that is a moral one. Um, and what he was trying to say, um, and I'm going to tease this out a little bit more, is that when we talk about these things, then we shouldn't talk about them as political issues. We should talk about them as moral issues. We should address them in the way that the Bible does through our Christian worldview. Um, and, and, and when you do that, when you kind of come at it from a different perspective, it, it actually makes it possible for you to have discussions about some of these things that otherwise just stay in sort of that political realm. Um, like I had a conversation about abortion a little while ago with probably one of my most progressive friends. Um, it started with her, um, and this, this was not something I planned. She walked over to me in the coffee shop and started talking to me, and I was like, okay, I guess this is what we're talking about now. Um, but she was talking down about how men should not speak when it, when it came to the issue of abortion, right? This is not, not something where a man should have an opinion. Um, and I, you know, basically said, well... Um, part of why unplanned pregnancies are such an issue is because men are not taking responsibility. And so when you remove men from the responsibility, um, it's actually going to get us further from where we need to be. If you say men have no place in this, then all of a sudden men are going to go, okay, we have no place in this. What we need to do is actually force men to feel the consequences of their actions so that they are less willing to treat a baby that is a result of a sexual encounter as not their problem. And so instead of trying to figure out how to make women as irresponsible as the men in these situations, we should actually figure out ways to relieve the burden on the mothers by putting more weight back on the fathers. In other words, I think we need to figure out how to make things right or more right rather than just trying to get rid of a problem. So this is how I presented it to her, and she actually was kind of like, I've never actually heard this part of the conversation because the conversation is never about kind of trying to make more responsibility go back. And so I explained that the reason why Christians focus on abstinence is not because we're all prudes, some of us are, um, but because God designed sex to lead to children and children are best taken care of by people who have committed to supporting one another and taking on the responsibility of sharing the weight. In addition, the reason why Christians advocate for, the, advocate for the unborn is not just because we're merely pro-birth, as some would claim, but because we are called to stand up for the weakest and most vulnerable. And so our opposition to abortion is not because we're anti-choice, but because we're against all forms of abuse. It's an issue of compassion, not an issue of control. Again, that was a phrasing that she hadn't necessarily thought of. And you go, come on. No, really. She had heard political talking points, and so all of a sudden she was going, oh, this is a different way of thinking about it than where I usually come from. She then responded about the struggle of women in these situations, and I agreed with her. It's terrible that women who do not want to have babies find themselves pregnant. It's also terrible that many women who want to be mothers can't conceive. And so we should... Reform the adoption system and create more support for unplanned pregnancies and celebrate motherhood rather than defining it as something that gets in the way of your career. But what I told her is what we can't do is decide to take a life simply because it's an inconvenience and creates hardship. We do need better solutions than what are currently being offered. But destroying life simply because you don't want it is not an ethical position. 
you can guess what her response was then. This isn't a life. It's a fetus. I said, what is that? What, what are we talking about? She said, it's a clump of cells. I said, so are you. So am I. But the fact that a, abortion is a procedure that terminates a pregnancy means that it's stopping something that is living, something that is there. And I don't know what else to call it. And I told her, I don't want to argue with you about when a heartbeat starts. I don't want to talk to you or necessarily argue about when the lungs develop or when the baby is viable outside of the womb or when it can feel pain. But the fact that we're talking about very human things there means that you have to at least consider that that is a human being. All of this makes the dehumanizing of the unborn unfathomable to me because I see life given by God, and I'm going to defend that poor, helpless child because it is vulnerable to abuse by those who have decided that it has no value. Now, again, what this is is taking it from just being a political issue of are we taking away a woman's rights to let's talk about compassion. Let's talk about the vulnerable. Let's talk about the reason why someone might stand up for something that you disagree with. She had framed in her mind all of these negative things, that there's nothing out there but people who just want to take things away um, and, and make it harder for women. Now, I don't necessarily think I convinced my friend. I'm actually pretty sure I did not. Um, but as Sharon said, it's not about winning the argument or convincing someone. It's about getting the truth of God out there and sort of planting those seeds. I don't know what that's going to lead to. There have been conversations where I've had those conversations, like, that went very poorly. The person came back later and actually asked more questions because it was an open enough dialogue that they were like, this is different than what I'm used to. Um, it's conversations that's not as political. It's about compassion and protection. Now, she can decide that her feminist commitments are stronger than any of the arguments that I made, but she can no longer assume that everyone who stands against her in this, and me in particular, is doing it simply because I'm anti-woman. Now, this is how we're going to have to navigate a lot of conversations now. And what I, what I mean is, what we're going to have to do is basically go, if you answer the questions that the people are asking, they're coming head on with a political thing. If you respond through kind of the rhetorical kind of political stance, I am this, hold up the sign, people are going to respond harshly. Well, what we have the opportunity to do is go, let's give a reason for the hope that is within us. Let's talk about why we've come to the, the, the conclusions that we have. Let's talk about what the gospel means to us. And in that, we're presenting a very different way of thinking about these things to a lot of people. Steering them away from their straw man characterizations and giving them a clear Christian vision for why we believe what we do. That Alan Noble article that I quoted earlier went on to say this. It says, persuasion now looks different than in the past. We cannot assume many shared moral values or basic knowledge of our faith. In fact, we should assume that many of our unbelieving neighbors have only a deeply misinformed understanding of our faith and are hostile to our morality. We need to give them a better understanding of what it is that we believe and why we believe it. And we have the opportunity to do that all the time. Like I said, I was not looking to have this conversation. I was working. I think I even had my headphones on, which is usually the signal of don't bother me. Um, she felt the need to come and engage me, and, and there was an opportunity there that I said, I'm, I am going to respond to her questions. We should do everything in our power to do this in a way that cares about the relationship that it is being delivered in. And for many of our relationships, it's not enough to simply reframe the conversation 
Sometimes we also just need to change the conversation. And what I mean by that is there's sometimes when they already know what you believe. I'll say this especially to families. There's a lot of times in families where there is someone who disagrees with you and they just want to bring up the same issue every time you get together. People and Christians often fear that, well, I need to speak the truth. It's like, if you've already spoken the truth, if they already know what you believe, sometimes in order to basically build up the, the, the family, to, to remind yourselves of what you share, you need to just go, we're not going to talk about this today. You really do need to sometimes just say, this isn't going to help us in actually being family. Um, we need to build up our shared basis in order to be able to carry the differences. Next one is the onslaught of information. Um, we have so much information coming at us at all times. Um, it's pretty much impossible to prioritize, to fact check it, or even to process it all. Um, while we want to be open-minded, a completely open mind ends up believing in everything and nothing all at once. And so what we need as human beings is something that helps us to filter out and manage all of this info. And so my way forward is this. Stop consuming so much information. Right? Now, in one sense, that might sound counterintuitive. Like, if you're going to be smart, you have to take in information. How are we going to become more knowledgeable unless we're taking on more or taking in more and more? Um, but living a fulfilled life is much more about wisdom than it is about information. To be wise is to recognize that there is a balance and a shalom of all relationships. And this interconnectedness goes way beyond our ability to navigate. Now, as Christians, we've been given a filter through which to understand the onslaught of information. See, because the information that we're given from the world is merely observable data. And, and observable data is sort of studied um, in isolation most of the time from all other data. Now, the only way that a study can be accurate is if it's narrow in its conclusions, because you can't have too many variables in a study. And so in science and sociology and psychology and all other forms of study, these unconnected data points need to sort of be strung together through a narrative. There's a story or a theory that connects all these isolated facts. And it's almost impossible for us to untangle what is proven from what is filling in the blank when we are sort of um, engaging with information. And so it's up, for us, up to us to take in all the information, process it, and come up with an accurate conclusion. And, and, and we can't really do that as human beings. We just don't have the ability. But in his word, God has given us a guiding narrative to put all of these facts into, right? Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. He's given us wisdom, literature, and law, and songs of lament. And what all of these do is they help us to prioritize truth and filter out what we don't need. And the beautiful thing is because it's coming from God, we can trust that he is considering the interconnectedness, the way that all of these things work together. And so when he tells us to do something, he's not just going like, oh, I didn't think about the secondary consequences of that. No, it's all been thought through. Right? We can submit to this and trust it because it is his good word. We can trust what he says is important and what he says is unimportant. And so we're freed from the burden of over-information, not because we are all-knowing, but because we submit to the one who is. God's word is sufficient. He has given us everything that we need to live in this world. And the more that we read and know and trust his word, the more confident and free we will be. Which leads to the last one, our insecure future. Um, the last thing adding to the disillusionment of the moment is a concern for where things are going, right? What's next? As I said, some of these are 
economic, some of these are sort of moral and cultural, um, and in many ways there are some legitimate concerns for what the world is going to look like in a generation or two. But the way forward here is to recognize that this life is not heaven. And as much as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we also realize that sin is always fighting against this. The Bible doesn't promise that we, us that we will be accepted or have influence or that we won't be persecuted. As a matter of fact, it says we will suffer. And the history of the church is evidence of this. And so whether or not dark times come for us as Christians in America has yet to be seen. The good news is the gospel is well suited to carry God's people through hard times and times of having much. Jesus came during the Roman occupation and the early church's writings were all happening as Christians were being thrown to the lions and burned. Right? It was given to, as we said before, a negative world. And so the message of reconciliation that we carry with us is just as effective, and some would say far more effective, in difficult times as it is in abundance. The issue here is not for us to try to change the culture or to fear where it may go, but to recognize that God's work and God's plans are always right in front of us. If we're investing in institutions and bridging the gaps, humanizing the issues and focusing on God's priorities, then we are going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be the hands and feet of God in this world. A world that will see an increase in the number of lost, depressed, confused, and aimless people. All who need Jesus. The world around us feels the tensions that we're talking about here. But they don't have the benefit of the identity, purpose, and the filter from God to help them through. And so we need to show the world that we are experiencing the same thing. We're living through the same times but we are not responding in fear and despair and vitriol. Because while we care for this world, it's not our ultimate. We live for a different kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So no matter what happens, we can rest in that. Our identity is secure. Our future is secure. Our God doesn't change. And so while... We're going to go through all sorts of things that we don't know how to handle. We can continue to come back to the cross, lay our burdens down, and go back out. 